Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. I'm almost losing my voice, so my goal is to get through this um, with some help from you, hopefully. Um, We've been studying the beginning of the second chapter of the Yoga Sutra, which deals with the five kleshas, which we've been understanding as uh, a way that a personality is constructed. And we've been looking at these sanskaras in particular as patterns that are not just thought of as habits of the individual, but also the way that the individual has the momentum of the culture uh, pressing through uh, him or her all the time. Um, And we've been nitpicky. We've been going through terms, as you can see, with Lori's help. We've been uh, looking at these terms in a lot of detail, Um, analyzing them. Tonight I wanted to do something a little bit different, which is to look at this through the lens of a koan. Um, Koans are stories that have come about where a teacher and a student, usually a teacher and a student, have a dialogue, and then the dialogue was designed to spontaneously stun the mind of the student. And often the teacher also, putting them into a relationship that's immediate and often threatening, um, where the student is asked to answer a question usually that's kind of like a riddle. And these are questions that are not meant to answer. They're questions that are meant to contemplate. And the real question is not what the answer of a koan is, but rather how a koan lives in you, or how you live a koan in your life. And there is a trick that some of you know of how to do koan practice, which is when you hear a koan to become the koan. And in becoming the koan, you can then respond uh, in a creative way, and um, then your teacher will hit you (laughs) until you get it right. We're going to do a a koan a little different tonight, which is we're going to do a community koan, which is we're going to work together on a koan. Um, The the goal of this uh, model is to help us see the way we construct our addiction to having a viewpoint and contracting around a viewpoint. And so vidya 
up here at the top is when we open to the way life really happens. We open to interconnectedness. When you really start to see interconnectedness, you start taking care of your body. You start taking care of your mind. You start taking care of your heart. When you really see interconnectedness, you start taking care of other people. And you see the relationship between taking care of yourself and taking care of others. Taking care of others and taking care of yourself. Um, so we use uh, community to wake up. We use the body to wake up. This weekend, we're also using the street to wake up. Um, several years ago, while I was on a meditation retreat at a beautiful retreat center, um, I started to imagine what would it be like to go on this same retreat with a similar group of people and not have this protected, perfect environment with birds at the right time, the bells at the right time, no phones ringing, amazing vegan food. Um, what would it be like? Because what we always talk about at the end of a retreat is um, PRS, which we call post-retreat syndrome, which is when people come off the retreat and there's so much um, one has to pay attention to, especially after long retreat, in order to really integrate these practices into one's life. Um, what would happen if we went on a retreat that was the opposite of a retreat, where we just immersed ourselves in our community by walking around in the streets? And of course, this has been done before. In 1991, Grover Gaunt and Bernie Glassman started teaching something called street retreats based on these, uh, they were Zen practitioners and Bernie Glassman, who was a priest at the time, who recently disrobed and became a clown, um, he had an experience on a retreat where he had a realization of what's called the hungry ghosts. The hungry ghosts refer to, the, they refer to our desires and the fact that we all have in us hungry ghosts, which are insatiable desires that cannot ever be satisfied. And what causes suffering in this paradigm is the constant feeding of desire based on the belief that you can satiate desire, which doesn't allow us to see that what desire loves the most is desire and more of it. So he had this realization that his desires were inextinguishable and he vowed to end homelessness in New York City. And he devoted the rest, he's devoted the rest of his life to trying to end homelessness in New York City. And the first way he tried to do it was starting a bakery, um, which is still there. Uh, he had this idea that he would take homeless people, employ them in a bakery, and try and make the best cheesecake in New York City, which they've done. And then they made it a for-profit center. So they took the profits from the bakery and they started buying the apartment buildings on the block and filling them with um, people who were working at uh, the uh, bakery and people associated to other little businesses that were starting around the bakery. 
And then they started creating really good medical centers. And this has just blossomed. And if you look up the Greystone Mandala, which is uh, Bernie Glassman's projects, it's really, really inspiring to see what he's doing. And it's based on these three principles. The first one is not knowing. Not knowing means giving up fixed ideas about yourself and others. This is what we're doing when we listen to sound, right? Is we're, we're practicing not knowing. So th- these are all meditation techniques, right? The first is not knowing. How to open to a situation and suspend what you know. And this gives rise to the second principle, which is bearing witness. That you can't really bear witness to what you feel or what's going on around you if you come in knowing. And I think we, we, we'll talk about this a lot when we start looking at ethics from Patanjali's perspective. And the third principle is taking loving action. That bearing witness is not enough. That when you really look closely at a situation, suspending your viewpoint, a new viewpoint arises. And out of that, you can take action, which is uh, what we've been calling situational ethics. So he used this to start street retreats, where you go into New York City with no money, you don't shower or wash for a week beforehand, Uh, you take one piece of ID, one bus token, and a group of people. Um, You don't take beds away from the homeless, so you never sleep in shelters, you only sleep outside. And if you can't find food, you go to a soup kitchen to find food. If the genders need to be split up to do that, that's what you do, which is different in every city. At the end, we donate money to anywhere we've eaten. It's almost like relying on the generosity of the street to wake you up. And um, when I first started thinking about how to do this, I didn't want to do it exactly the way they do it, because for me, the motivation was not to bring awareness to homelessness necessarily, but really just to treat it as a retreat to study interdependence. And when I started talking about it, nonstop critique from everybody I knew. This is role-playing. This is just using resources that other people need. So we started a committee. Uh, Angelo was involved. Um, Who else here was? I think that's it. Um, And we started learning how we could create a street retreat. I had emails from everywhere, Paris, California, Manitoba. (laughs) How can you do this? Don't you have better ethical standards than this? And and there were so many times where I wanted to quit because I felt like I would get into the discourse and I would say, yeah, yeah, this is wrong, this is... And, And somehow I felt like the fact that I wanted to be in the street and that I was scared to do it, and that I am scared to do it, and somehow not having food and being hungry, I started to realize, you know, this isn't really role-playing. When you're cold, you're cold. (laughs) And when you're hungry, you're hungry. And the streets are different at different times. And trying to find a way to enter this retreat without making an us and them, which has to do with not knowing bearing witness and and taking action that we can't determine beforehand. So we're going into this street retreat this weekend and 30 people applied for 10 spots 
And although we said it was a lottery, it was a sort of lottery at the beginning, but I only uh, accepted or we only accepted people who had mixed feelings about the retreat. So John applied and in his application he said, you know, I have no idea why I'm doing this. I feel really mixed about it. <laughs> and he was in. <laughs> um, so I came across a passage today that I wanted to read. Uh, this is from Michael Lerner's book, Surplus Powerlessness, which is the only book of his I've ever been able to get through, um, which is actually from when he was a psychologist. Um, and I think this captured how I'm feeling about the street retreat. In our historical moment, the unhappiness and tension and alienation created by living in a repressed society shows up in family life, in our personal relationships, in our crime figures, in the way we treat each other at work and in our neighborhoods, at sports events, at the movies, in our PTAs and in our churches. The alienation in our society is overwhelming. It cannot be ignored. Precisely because denial of our fundamental human needs hurts so much, there's continual hope that we will break through our isolation and connect with each other in a deeper way and find ways to change the larger situation. So the reason for going through the kleshas in this way and studying the way we study is to kind of break through the coldness, um, the, the inability to, to, to see interconnectedness um, that so dominates our view of our world when we're contracted in this uh, hemmed-in version of ourselves that's always creating an us and a them. This is the purpose of the street retreat. So in the spirit of the street retreat, I thought we could look at a koan which captures all of this in a nutshell. Maybe. This comes from the 8th century in China. Listen with your whole body. Dizeng asks Zwishan, where do you come from? Zwishan said, from the south. Dizeng said, how is Buddhism in the south these days? Zwishan said, there's extensive discussion. Dizeng said, how can that compare to me here planting the fields and making rice to eat? Zwishan said, what can you do about the world? Dizeng said, what do you call the world? Let's go through it again. <laughs> Some of you might recall that this is very similar to an earlier story of Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma comes from... Bodhidharma is the person who supposedly brought Buddhism from India to China. And he meets the emperor, Emperor Wu, in the Lian province. And the emperor says... Um, what is the Dharma? And Bodhidharma says, 
unholy nothing. If someone asked you, what is Buddhism? You would say, oh, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, uh, this group that I go to. He just says, unholy nothing. And then confused, the emperor says to Bodhidharma, well, then who is standing in front of me? And Bodhidharma says, I don't know. And this becomes sort of the classic first story about leaving behind what happened to Buddhism, which is institutionalization, memorization of lists, and so on. And you have this direct experience where the question is, what do you practice? And he's basically saying, unholy nothing. And then, well, then who the hell are you? And he says, I don't know. It doesn't mean he doesn't know. It means he knows he can't know. So you can hear this in the background, right? Where do you come from? From the south. And any of you who've been on retreat, you know that when you have an interview with a teacher, you get five to ten minutes. And it's intense. Usually we're pretty nervous. We don't know how to present ourselves. Um, And sometimes we have small talk from the south. (laughs) And in the small talk, the teacher is trying to notice, is this person shy? Is this person arrogant? Is this person listening to the instruction? Are they following the breath? And sometimes you also see um, where people can't allow themselves to show up in an interview. The cool thing about interviews, uh, from the teacher's perspective that I'm learning, is in the first couple days of retreat, people come into the interview and they just talk about, like, what they're struggling with, my depression, my pain in my back. But then over a few days, they start to talk more about the practice. Oh, the breath is like this. This is where I'm feeling it in my body. And and it starts to shift where, where we sort of get out of just the local view. So this is kind of what's happening here. Where do you come from? From the south. They're feeling each other out, right? Where do you come from? From the south. So he asks, well, how is Buddhism in the south these days? <laughs> and Zwishan said, so by the way, from the south, the south and the north in China are two schools, and they don't, there's a debate between them all the time. The south debates too much, too intellectual. Um, There's extensive discussion. So how is the practice? Well, there's extensive discussion about it. Um, And then the teacher starts to push and says, how does that, so how does this extensive discussion compare to me here planting the fields and making rice to eat. How does your sitting practice influence the way you walk down the street? How do these yoga postures affect the way you plant your food, the way you cook your food, the way you take care of your body? Is there something real going on in your practice? Or are you just following exotic forms from the south, from the east? 
How can that compare to me here planting the fields and making rice to you? Don't mothers say this? I'm glad you got to go on a retreat, but how does that compare with me <laughs> breastfeeding and changing these diapers? It's a good question. And Zwishin says, what can you do about the world? What can you do about the world? This is my path. This is your path. What, what can you do about the world? Maybe defensive, but yet a question? It, it's a confusing point. And then this is the skill of the teacher goes right at him again. What do you call the world? What are you calling the world? What are you calling the world? This is the idea of the street retreat. You know, what do you call the street? What do you call a retreat? Um, the original name for street retreat, before they came up with that good name, was the plunge. <laughs> Which is so New York. <laughs> So I just want to read one more passage here, and then I'd like to work together on these questions for a few minutes. Um, a commentator named Wan Song comments on this koan, and he says something really interesting. This is about 400 years later. Uh, planting the fields and making rice are ordinary household matters. Only those who have investigated to the full would know this. Having investigated to the full, you clearly know there's nothing to seek. In other words, I think a lot of people say, my whole life is my practice. And I, I love that philosophy. Everything I do is practice. But I think to really be able to do that, we need some formal practice. And we commit to this formal practice, not as an end in itself, but as a means to take action in a way that's less reactive and more creative. Dogen comments, this is in Japan, and he says, my favorite, the water is clear right through the earth. A fish goes along like a fish. The sky is vast, straight into the heavens. A bird flies just like a bird. In other words, when you practice and you're fully in your life, you can't see your life, just like a bird. A bird flies like a bird. It doesn't walk around like a giraffe. It flies like a bird. Water acts like water. There's a saying, you know, the elbow can only bend in one direction, is the common teaching on karma, which means when you do this practice, you become yourself. You don't disappear out of your body. You wake up to the, an intimacy with who you are and what that means in each and every moment. So these two questions, um, the first is, what can you do about the world? The second is, what do you call the world? 
are, I think, really, really important questions. I think they get right to the heart of what we do here. I'm going to read the koan again, and then I would like you to get into groups of three. Four? Three. Four? Four. Four. Yeah, four. Thank you. And I would like you to talk together about these two questions and what they mean. What can you do about the world? Maybe there's an issue you have right now. Oil in New Orleans. Or, you know, a a parent who is not doing well. Or a a park that they want to use for protests that people are debating right now. Um, What can you do about the world? And the second question, what do you call the world? Where do you come from? From the South. How is Buddhism in the South these days? There's extensive discussion How can that compare to me here planting the fields and making rice to eat? What can you do about the world? What do you call the world? Good luck. (laughs) Please remember that these questions are something to, to become, not something to answer if that makes sense to you. So, 10 minutes. Uh, Make sure you find a group of people you don't like too much. (laughs) Uh, It might be nice uh, hearing from you, especially the shy people. What did you... What was the extensive discussion? Without editing. So the world is the present moment, and what can we do about the world? Be awake, be aware. The world is the present moment. And what do we do about the world? Uh-huh. Be aware, be awake. What happened? <laughs> there was such extensive discussion. So you can't be. You, you won't. You're not wrong. Okay. You can't answer this wrong. Yeah. Um, okay. Unless you answer it. So we decided to do group. Thanks. Okay. So we decided as a group that we would take the second question first. Uh-huh. in relation to, to the first question. So we asked first, what do we call the world? And then we tried to figure out what we would call it. Um, and I suggested that we come up with four different responses because I think each individual response to the Quan is incredibly valid. Uh-huh. And perhaps there's a theme. So uh, Sarah, uh, we came up with one word that would answer it, so she chose the word neighbor or neighbors as what we call the world. And connecting with that, she felt mindfulness of our interconnection and contribution to our neighbors. Alex chose the word home, both domestically or uh, socially or um, worldly, Mm -hmm. as in the globe. 
we create our home and we move past barriers. Rose chose the word relationship, relationships, and uh, through relationships we cultivate patience. And I chose the word illusions and residing in peacefulness as what I would call the world. Mm. And that was correct. <laughs> I hope it was correct. <laughs> because you have to go out there and do it now. <laughs> Someone else. What, what happened in your group? I just found it interesting right off the top that the order that the student asks, what do we call, what do we do about the world? So uh-huh. the action is the person they were thinking about. And then the teacher says, but let's go back further. Like, how do you see the world first before you act in it? And yeah. I felt like, I just, I don't know, I remember this feeling of being like 16, being like, I have to go change the world or I have to do food not bombs and like do all these things on the street and um, before I'd I just remember sort of taking these actions without really necessarily being connected to them or doing them for all these different reasons that weren't necessarily conscious or something Uh or just because I wanted to be cool or have friends or (laughs) I don't know so I just found that's sort of where I started Mm -hmm. sort of just What you're saying reminds me a little bit of when I was, you know, some of you know I teach a lot of clinicians, and, you know, the number one thing that you find when you teach a lot of clinicians is burnout. And I remember having this insight one day that, you know, most clinicians who were complaining of burnout were not burnt out from their work that actually they were doing this amazing work. But what they were burnt out from was bad theory. This, this, this idea of that they were out there helping people and that they had to help somebody, which comes along, and, and along with that is like a separation of a me and the other so that we start to get attached to what they look like if they were happy, Right? So when, when we go out there to do any kind of activism, how easy it is to, to create this us versus them. I'm going out there and helping a world that's out there, and there's a me in here. What do I call the world? Well, who is this I that's calling the world something? Like Bodhidharma, who are you? And he can't answer the question. Um... I would want to start with the question, what is the world? Uh-huh. And um, it's everything. Uh-huh. And what do you do about the world? Um, whatever little piece I can. Mm-hmm. And the, the barrier isn't there. Uh-huh. That I'm part of everything, and I can't control anything except my own... Inter- interaction with everything. Uh-huh. So each moment, um, doing the best that I can with each moment is all I can do uh-huh. about the world. Uh-huh. So that's it's, that's similar to. Is it Leanne's? Same group? Yeah. No. no, that's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keep going. Yeah. There's a question. The question. 
Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> There's a good koan about that. <laughs> There's a koan where, where the student says to the teacher, well, what would you say, teacher? <laughs> That's Leanne's favorite, favorite koan. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. No, Keep going. And this idea of separateness from everything, like what do you call that or what yeah. do I do? And this idea of almost like human being being separate from the world, almost like sitting on the world. Yeah. And, um, so the actual question itself raised questions about the question. Yeah. Um, which was interesting. Yeah. This is this is really where the where the term deep ecology comes from, which is this idea that uh, if you're going to talk about the ecology of the natural world, we have to get out of kind of environmental thinking of protectionism. Uh, the human is doing this for our benefit. And how do you think about a human being as being equal in value to the bird song? Mm-hmm. And it just freaks people out too much. Nobody can okay. handle that. The but idea but of doing doing and like results or like do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 But then wanting to do like wanting to help. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's huge. This side, somewhere. It brought the, what do you do about the world brought me to the question, what is this? Where you can't answer it unless, unless you're there in that moment Uh with this. Yeah. Um, So what do you do about the world? And it's unanswerable until each moment that you have to ask that question. Um, so you're saying, like, picture the, the student standing up and the teacher's down there making rice to eat, probably squatting, making some rice to eat. Mm-hmm. He's, he's in that moment fully in the world. Is that what you're saying? You have, you have to be fully... In the world to be able to answer that. Because it will, what do you do about the world changes mm-hmm. each moment because uh-huh. the shifts... But then we were talking about the idea of, um, of projection and when we want to help but we maybe are projecting from ourselves what the world needs. Uh-huh. Um, and I've seen so many people wanting to help and they're doing more harm than helping because mm-hmm. they're just out there to change the world. <coughs> maybe not in the way that it actually mm-hmm. uh, needs. Yeah. So there's a lot, mm-hmm. of, yeah, a lot of layers and, and a lot of awareness needed to know when you, you need to help, when you need to let it, let it be, and that's your way of helping. Uh-huh. And the idea uh, by Eleanor was raised of um, the intention behind your help. And when is it a controlling intention? When is it a mm-hmm. more loving, caring? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also think that's the reason why it's very clever that the questions are in that order. Mm-hmm. Because when the student asks, what can you do about the world? Mm-hmm. There's, this, there's still an assumption that we're understanding the same world mm-hmm. and that we both belong to a part of the world. Yeah. And we're doing, like, we are on, on a side. So there's a lot of dualism still there uh-huh. and lots of view, point of view. Uh-huh. So when the teacher then asks that, it really cuts through through that assumption, which we tend to do a lot when um, 
it's so hard to get out of dividing the world into things, into I'm helping these people and that people don't need help. Yeah. Uh, or well off, but they're not. Yeah. And we, we discussed that there's always, that, that nobody can do the work for you. There's a work yeah. nobody can do for you. And yeah. there's a fine stretch uh, for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the work. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, what's interesting about this koan, Ronit, is that most koans, as most of you know, they fall on one side or the other, the side of dualism or non-dualism. Some people so stuck in themselves need something to push them to kind of have an experience, whatever name we give it, the jhanas, samadhi, uh, satori, to have an experience of what this really feels like, to feel this level of interconnectedness. And they need to be pushed. And a lot of the koans, 50% of them, push people in that way. But then there are people who, who can do that. And they need to be pushed in the other way. And then you have the whole koans like, what is the Buddha? A shit stick. Or, you know, what are you? A bag of flax. Or, you know, what's the core of the teaching? Wash your bowls. <laughs> Which is like trying to get out of oneness trying to get out of oneness and back into the fact that you can't live oneness. You live oneness in duality. Um, and I think most of the time people who enter these kind of practices, they're just looking for the hit of oneness. But you can't live like that. The, both, both are true. That was the way that, that I answered it, which wasn't necessarily shared in the group, but um, the what is the world. Um, my, my first instinct was I am, and while on the one hand it's kind of uh, unrealistic to think that I am the world, on the other hand, it's like you say, like there isn't ever a single story or event that I have not been yeah. at the center of. And then in a sense that makes it a little... Um, easier to work with the second question, which then was echoed in the group, which was, well, um, you know, you just, uh, you change first here, and then that reflects in the world. Yes. But this is kind of the only thing you have absolute control over. Yeah. Christian. Even though the teacher sounds like he's asking a question, to me uh -huh. it kind of feels like he's answering the question. Like uh -huh. the answer or like an idea could be easier about the world but you remember the world and so he's, if he asks well what is the world then it mm -hmm. has to bring up that memory mm -hmm. or that remember mm -hmm. one more one more comment, question Karina I feel like like the answers are built in too in the way that the questions are posed at the first one um, and then the second one is if the answers are already there so well what is the world and if you really tune into what's there then what you do about it's there mm -hmm. too hmm. <laughs> that's the taking action piece mm. bearing witness taking action mm -hmm. Okay, I would love to spend a few more hours doing this, but some of you have been here since 5 o'clock. Um, 
I hope that you can take this koan into your life and uh, maybe sit with it. Um, one of the ways you can practice a koan is when you do your daily meditation, which you all do every morning, um, when the breath gets settled, or if you're working with sound, when you feel like the nerves are kind of calm, you can start asking this question. Uh, what do you do about the world? What do I do about the world? What do I call the world? And, and, and if, if you're calm and you ask this question, just, just ask the question and just watch what happens. If you ask the question and then you start like going off into all kinds of ideas, then you're not asking the question, you're answering it. So this can be something to do. This is what we're going to do on our street retreat, is we're going to work with this question. Um, what do you do about this city? Um, what do you call the city? Which is actually a vow to make sure that the way you look and breathe and speak and act includes everything and doesn't leave things out. When I walk down the street, there's a lot I don't want to look at. So I, I like leaving things out. There's certain graffiti, there's certain people, there's a certain homeless guy. I, I just, that's not what I want to look at when I'm going to get my coffee. Um, and maybe in another state of mind, I might entertain looking at that. So this is why we do this practice. We forget how to look. So, let's finish chanting. <coughs>